Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. President Donald Trump's victory in the 2016 U.S. election and his subsequent withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, ongoing tariff war with China, attacks on the North American Free Trade Agreement, right-wing populism and national nationalistic leanings, and overall transactional approach to foreign policy has driven anxious commentators to lament the collapse of the post-1945 liberal world order. Defenders of the order urge U.S. leaders to keep the tradition of institution building and multilateralism, while critics of the order argue that the order has long been in trouble, and now is the time to finally address the liberal world order's shortcomings. Now, to help us better understand the core principles of the liberal international order and how it has impacted U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy, we are delighted to welcome Patrick Porter to the podcast. Dr. Porter is a professor of international security and strategy at the University of Birmingham in the UK and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London. He researches the liberal world order, (laughs) but particularly how power and ideas help shape American and English defense and foreign policy. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you. But first, before we start talking about the topic at hand, we're going to talk a little bit about what's been happening in the world. So Taiwan has been really busy trying to charm the United Nations. It's focusing on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and how it's achieved them. Um, Now, it's important to know that Taiwan lost its UN membership in 1971 when the organization decided to recognize Beijing as its representative. Is that changing now? And why would Taiwan want to join the UN? Well, to put it very brutally, it makes it harder to be invited, or at least that would be the theory that you... If you become, if you achieve a recognized status, and if you take the bet that if the world recognizes you as such, uh, it creates a kind of institutional or ideological buffer against aggression. But this is this is an island that has a very large Chinese artillery and air power focused on it, presumably with pretty well drawn up plans for amphibious invasion, which I imagine focuses the mind. In Taipei, and I imagine as well doing this, uh, there's not much downside to being recognised by the UN. So why not? Yeah, good point. I think uh, you know China's recent uh, stepped-up activity in in the uh, waters in and around you know China have to be worrisome to to Taiwan on one level. But actually, you know, I have a couple of colleagues who took a, a study visit to talk to senior military officials in Taiwan not too long ago. And the big surprise to them and to me upon hearing it was how unconcerned most of the Taiwanese are mm. about China. The level of, of concern is like just unimaginably low. It seems like many Taiwanese think that it's just a matter of time before China gives up mm. and becomes like Taiwan. And I, and so, I, you know, if that's true, then you wonder, is this just sort of some weird vestigial government program to join the UN that doesn't have anything to do with the threat or does, as Patrick suggests, it seems clearly like maybe not a particularly wonderful deterrent, but hey, better than nothing and cheap. So we might as well do it. I don't know. Huh, that is really interesting. I wonder if that would ever happen. I feel like China might always be concerned with Taiwan or maybe I'm just buying into the myth that surrounds Washington, D.C., a lot of myths that I think we're going to discuss later on, too. But um, in intelligence news, the envoys from the U.S. and uh, Cuba met last week to discuss the puzzling health attacks on 26 American diplomats. Now, Cuba claims 
that the U.S. has been uncooperative and has failed to provide more details of the attacks and the symptoms. First of all, why would Cuba attack American diplomats in this way? Are these health attacks common worldwide or is this like a fluke in the intelligence community? It did happen somewhere else, right? Some There was one other place where, where people uh, said this had happened, was it maybe it was China or somewhere else, random, some other place. And that made me think, okay, maybe it's not the, the Cubans and may, maybe not even just the Russians or maybe somebody's decided that was a good idea. So now they're going to do a copycat thing, sort of hide in the, in the noise. That, but it seems unstrategic as all heck. I mean, what's the point here? Nothing, as far as I can tell. Yeah. It seems randomly, is it a student project? Is it like, you know, some, you know, idiot who, who figured out how to do this with microwaves? We or might whatever. have to await the opening of the archives. We may indeed. <laughs> well, I just think it's odd that the U.S. hasn't been forthcoming. I mean, I would, I would assume that if diplomats obviously have suffered some sort of attack, so why not just tell the Cubans, like, this is the symptoms and what have you done instead of being coy about it? That also seems a little odd to me. Um, it is the Trump administration. It is the Trump administration. This is true. Perhaps they just, um, maybe the person who was in charge of this got fired last week. Who knows? Um, but, you know, Patrick, since you're here uh, with us from London, I have to ask about Brexit a little bit, right? So we have the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Um, he's called um, to have a plebiscite on the final UK-EU deal on Britain's exit from the bloc that would include a no-deal option. So what are your views on Brexit and on this proposed plebiscite? I was a reluctant opponent of leaving the European Union. Uh, I th think it's not worth the trouble for too much cost and bother and diversion of energy and resources and people, much as the European Union it has morphing into something I don't particularly like. I think it's better for a major power within it to stay within it, to be able to balance. So there's a kind of almost realist case for Britain remaining in because Britain geographically is where it is and a, a federalizing Europe with ambitions would be on its doorstep and a reality whether it's in it or not. But reasonable people can disagree. Uh, I think a second plebiscite is a bad idea because I think plebiscites are a bad idea. Uh, I'm with Clement Attlee. They're devices for demagogues and dictators. I, I prefer to be ruled within a parliamentary democracy with responsible elected members who are not there to obey orders but to offer their judgment and stand for election and, and be accountable. So it's, it's much more going on than leaving the European Union. It's, it's an experiment in direct democracy, which is antithetical to, I think, the best traditions of of, of British democracy, British constitutional government. And I worry that a second referendum, like the first referendum, will not just be about the European Union. It'll be a referendum on how things are in the world. And it'll be a referendum about how Britain is supposed to be governed. And it'll be very difficult to prevent it becoming a very coarse and demagogic exercise in arguing about the will of the people, which is an idea that requires careful handling. So yeah, I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I'm not super opinionful about whether Britain should or should not be part of the EU. I, I think the EU is a bizarre organization that that even the people who run it don't understand. Um, it, it's it's kind of the fatal conceit multiplied, you know, to an extent that that rarely have people imagined we could we could have bureaucrats control these this many pieces and aspects of other people's lives uh, from a single place. But but 
like you said, I, I don't, uh, that's having been said, I, it didn't seem like it was doing a lot of harm on a daily basis yeah. to Britain and the massive diversion of attention and navel gazing that it's in and polarization within Britain it and all these other everything. things. Yeah. It's just a 800 pound gorilla now with yeah. no purpose other than to stomp things. So. Well, on that note, um, I have to ask you our surprise question of the okay. day, which is basically what got you interested in international relations? Was it a class you took or a book you read, somebody you met? So what made you want to be who you are today? Well, ever since I was a very little kid in Australia, I've had a real fascination for America and Americana. Uh, it might have something to do with the fact that there used to be a lot of old black and white movies on on TV on sort of Sunday afternoons, we'd sort of watch them, and Americans were this sort of exotic and very often beautiful with lovely teeth and tall and this, this like, different species. And when you're a kid, that's, you know. And I remember I actually met my first American uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. It was a, it was a silver-haired American preacher. And she, she shook my hand. I'll never forget it. And so there's always been a thing about America. And then it, that became a thing about American power and ideas and the size and the scale of the thing and the wildness of it and the ambition of it. I guess the event that really got me, because I actually was an historian for quite a while, um, sort of British and European history, but what got me thinking very hard a lot about America and about security was 9-11 and the attempt to craft a response to 9-11 and the, 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 the large-scale attempt to secure America by transforming the greater Middle East and all, everywhere that that led, and then competing theories ex making sense of this and making sense of what's the best thing to do. And that's at the core of international relations, but uh, in the world's richest and biggest state, most consequential state anyway, uh, that's been an abiding obsession. So that's how I got into it. That's interesting because usually we're asking Americans this question, and very often it has to do with them having an experience with non-Americans. Yeah. So this is this is now the reverse. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see that uh, intercultural uh, travel and, and contact is often the spark for people in this yeah. business. Yeah. Old movies. Old movies too. Yeah. Those black and white movies are really good. And I you're know. right. Americans have always had good teeth. Yeah. It's not something I've really thought about that much. But it's a point of much resentment abroad. <laughs> Moving on, um, the liberal international order. So, Patrick, you've written extensively on the liberal international order and how it's shaped U.S. grand strategy in various outlets like international security, war on the rocks, and even for us here at Cato. But before we dive into the merits or demerits of the order, let's start with some of the basics. In the minds of those who defend it, what is the liberal international order and why do they love it so much? They believe that out of the wreckage of World War II, the, the emerging superpower created something better and good and that could last, and that this was informed by real idealism and internationalism, almost a kind of post-war enlightenment project to replace centuries of arbitrary domination and strife with a system of regularity and a system of, you know, as some of them say, a kind of globe living under the rule of law. And they credit this uh, often rather too easily with the absence of major power war since then, uh, with economic growth and the broader fashioning of an international society really of a way of doing diplomacy, of multilateral talks and a sort of normative way of being for diplomats and, and for governments in the world. 
So it comes from the fixation with it and the desire to preserve it and or restore it comes from a, some very good intentions. And uh, good intentions can be deadly things. I think it's interesting because you know one of the things that um, is, I think, up for grabs at this point, because there's a lot of debate about this topic these days among people who care about such things, uh, is how much of the the birth of the whatever you think the liberal international order was, how much really was uh, principle and how much was just power? Was it was this an experiment, a Wilsonian experiment in running a new and better world? Or was it really a, a power play disguised with some pretty language and some international institutions to hide the fact that every one of these institutions had baked in American vetoes, American pulling the strings, and Americans gaining the most out of everything. And and you know, then when we, we come to the defenders of it today, I wonder, I, I sense that there are two strains of argument from the defenders. One, uh, from the left especially, I would like to keep pushing towards the ideal world of laws and rules and, and so on. And then the others on mostly, I think, on the right who think I want to preserve American advantage. And and so I you know Yeah, I mean in terms of explaining the desire for it, as well as the belief that you know, it created really good things, I think there's something deeper there, which is a strong theme, a strong current within American foreign policy dialogue, debate. And that is this desire that the republic could become a superpower and order the world whilst remaining a republic. The worry that a republic can lose its soul, the worry that a republic can become corrupt, and in trying to conquer the world or in trying to you know, order the world, um, disorders its own republicanness and becomes just another state that America would lose its singularity. We didn't really get a chance to talk get into this today, but I think there's a real anxiety there that that you want to have both, and it's quite difficult to do that. Uh, yes, some people would say that liberal order is is cynical power politics in a suit, saying nice things. I I think it's trickier than that. I think there's a lot of sincere belief. In a way, sincere idealism can be a much more dangerous force than cynicism. I think that's great. And I think um, your other point, you had mentioned earlier of how sometimes good intentions can be bad. And I think that the liberal world order does certainly um, describe some of that. But you know, you're, you've know, you obviously criticized the nostalgia so many people have these days about the order. So what are your main arguments? My most, the argument I most wanted to make is that ordering the world as a process as an act is a very illiberal thing to do. The world is actually still a very large place, not a small place. It's an inconvenient place. There are lots of people with different ideas of their interests who aren't cooperative. It's a very conflicted place. Even the rules conflict with each other. So trying to trying to impose a mastery on that or, or a, what they call leadership and a hierarchy it must involve compromises at, at least accommodations with illiberalism, with violations of rules, with with the exercise of privilege. And I, a lot of that tragic reality is 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 wished away in this in this talk, in in, in this in this rhetoric, in this this literature. Secondly, a, a more simple point that the United States as the world's leader since nineteen forty five has done a lot of illiberal things. Uh, it's made a lot of illiberal allies. It's Exercise privileges it wouldn't allow to others. Uh, you can defend or attack any any one of these from the dropping of the atomic bomb, so introducing a genocidal weapon to the world, which I think is, under the circumstances, actually a defensible act, all the way to signature strikes or even 
less dramatically, US intelligence secretly spying on Angela Merkel's mobile phone. There is a roughness to power politics, international power politics. And you sometimes worry, well, am I just stating the obvious, but then why doesn't it appear in this literature? Why do they not want to talk about it? I think it's genuinely because it upsets the story. And my third thing is really that we need to clear away the sort of fantastical nostalgia and acknowledge the very mixed diplomatic history here in order to forge a workable design or strategy for the future. But if we keep on with this, this, this nostalgia, then it promotes a certain resistance to thinking rigorously about can we sustain what we're doing? Is there a better alternative? What are the risks? And even if Americans were to decide that the status quo is actually the least bad, at least do that with clear eyes. You know, I, I, I think those are three extremely important points. And the point that you made sort of about the United States doing illiberal things and making illiberal friends, I think is absolutely accurate, especially when you look at U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia is, is is troubling. The United States relationship with Israel and especially how the Israeli government treats Palestinians um, is something that's been troubling for, for many, especially here at Cato, who argue um, for more liberal practices, if you will. Um, Let me just break in. Yes. I have a question. Yeah. And that is, in your Cato paper, you, you know, and, and maybe elsewhere, you know, I think one of the sort of uh, summary versions of the critique is it wasn't that liberal, it wasn't entirely international, and it wasn't that ordered. Um, and so one of the questions I have for you about your critique of the defenders, is it that it wasn't liberal enough, that it wasn't international enough or not ordered? I mean, are you wh wh where exactly are they you know, misreading what it was? It, would it have been a better thing and more worth defending if it was yet more liberal, if it was yet more perfectly internationalized if it was more th ordered or is that? Oh, I think it would have been a, a more sustainable thing if there'd been a little bit less fantasy. It's it's the injection of, of this constant repeated missionary impulse, which you need to have a little bit in international affairs. You need a, a sense of altruism reality, but it has to be checked and going unchecked and becoming this, this sort of hubris. That's even if it was the best thing we've ever had, it's becoming very unsustainable. Unaffordable, I think, and actually, where we are right now, we're on collision. The U.S. and the U.S.-led West is on collision course with some other powers. If we keep going like this, um, it, it could be very bad. It's surely a moment to stop and think about alternatives. Um, I don't think there could. I mean, I think you, you don't. You can't have mastery of world order and make it liberal or be liberal. That's that's not that's not possible. That's a kind of starting a prior assumption where I guess my opponents and I sort of have to agree to disagree almost. I think, um, you know, I so I don't really, in my research, don't always focus on liberal international order. But one thing that resonated with me um, in sort of for those people who advocate for the order is to say that when this order began, when these institutions began, they didn't think the architects of the order at the time in the 1945 era since then didn't think that it would become what it is today. It almost makes me think about the role of institutions and how important are institutions like this. We might start an institution and we have no idea what it's going to look like in 40, 50, 60 years. So in your view, do international institutions matter or should we put checks and balances in place before them to ensure that they don't sort of, you know, fast track into something that's illiberal. And then also my other question would be, um, 
you know, with the liberal international order, it's almost based on this assumption that everybody in the world wants liberalism. And that's just not true. Some Americans don't want them. Uh, I mean, th there's a serious thing here about to what extent in managing its its hegemony in the world, the American liberalism has taken a lot of hits. Um, a national security state. I mean, the gravest and one of the most grave and illiberal things a state can do is to execute people. So there's a there's a complication domestically in terms of institutions. I think institutions matter insofar as they facilitate the exercise of prudent power politics, but they can't substitute for it. Uh, one of the good things about the United Nations is that it builds in and prices in the possibility that other states are going to want to be veto players. Of okay, it freezes the musical chairs in 1945, but an international institution which didn't allow for some states uh, restraining others, particularly in terms of using military force, would mean you have what you have with the League of Nations, where Germany just walked out. So there's a compromise there which I sympathize with. And I guess that, that leads to the next point. I Because I don't think international institutions are all important, and I don't think they have a separate existence from the life of great powers, I also don't blame them for a lot of things. I, I think it's on balance a good thing to keep the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, UNESCO, <laughs> European Union. Uh, but, and people will disagree with this, they don't exert independent effects to the extent that some people think they do. So it does still come down to the will of great powers. The rules are not the Leviathan. No, they can't be. <laughs> they can't be. Uh, and what's, what's just as important is who gets to decide who gets to break the rules. And that's a power political question. So within the United States, what is the role of the American foreign policy and defense establishment in maintaining this world order? And has this harmed U.S. interests? So the, I think there is such a thing as a foreign policy slash security establishment. Uh, and I think that it's very effective, full of very smart people who uh, share a very entrenched ideological view of how America can pursue security, how it should pursue security, about leadership, about the need to be preponderant in key regions, about the need to inhibit nuclear proliferation, about what you might call um, capitalism on American terms, and that it is very well entrenched. as it, it has an emplacement where it works through a revolving door in and out of government. It's very close to power. It's close to think tanks, uh, corporations, foundations, academia, uh, a very cohesive group. It used to be used to be much more socially monochrome, and then it became much more socially diverse, but ideologically very homogenous in terms of the base the baseline assumptions about American power and security in the world. And they're effective partly because I think they really mean it. They they really do believe that those things, and and they attract some terrifically smart people. I had coffee yesterday with Tom Wright of Carnegie. My goodness me, you have to be on your metal to argue with, or Jake, Jake Sullivan, people like that. Now, I think they do exert a constraint on US foreign policy debate over the fundamentals, and I think that is actually quite damaging. I think that doesn't allow for the kind of scrutiny that you need. And so the net result is that the debate in Washington is mostly how, not whether, to pursue primacy in the world. Yeah, it's sort of an operational code. It's it's about tactics and and how much budget we need to do it. It's not about what to do. Um, it's not not grand strategic in any real sense. And it, it's interesting because you know there's nothing better than everyone being on the same page when when you're right about what needs to be done. It's when 
what you're certain about just ain't so that you run into problems. And I think that may, may be where we're at today. So it seems like everyone has an opinion about where the U.S. should be in the world and where the U.S. or where the world is going. But in your view, what should replace the international world order? So I think there does need to be an order. Uh, it's not just to be mere anarchy. Uh, some negotiated coexistence between, particularly in between the great powers. I would favor what Richard Betts at Columbia talks about as a negotiating a, a balance of power whereby they have a series of, of mutual of bargains, power-sharing bargains or mutual accommodation. There's a good article by Peter Beinhart, which I would basically sign up to, about the price of this being negotiating the status of what you, what you might call frontier states, Taiwan, Georgia, etc. cetera. Uh, maybe one day Kuwait, who knows, but uh, where... If there are places where, in reality, the U.S. would actually probably not go to the mat to defend, it's better to try and secure those countries some kind of internal liberty at a price of external neutrality. And the point of that would be to uh, negotiate a movement into a less dangerous multipolarity than either, than we other might, otherwise might have. But we're not going to know the full shape of that until we start trying to negotiate it, and it would require a lot of reciprocity. And it might not work. China and Russia and Iran might not want to do that. And actually, it might be too late now. A lot of smart people were arguing a few years ago, like Hugh White in Australia, that we need to be talking about power sharing and what are the bargains you would need and other things like you know a halt to NATO expansion or inviting China into... The, uh, having to into having a greater say in places, things like the IMF and the World Bank, institutional accommodation, but that where we are right now in 2018 is that for a number of reasons, it's too late that the US under Trump is actually doubling down on a, on a particularly strident kind of primacy. And China is doubling down quite aggressively in South, in, in, in South Asia and in also the domestic politics in Asian countries. Um, we might be too far down it now, and it's about a generation now of coping with sort of Cuban missile crisis situations and confrontations. If I had to bet, I'd say probably deterrence will hold. The nuclear revolution is a powerful thing, but I hope I'm right. You know, it makes me think, and this is, I, I realize that you don't study Chinese foreign policy, right? But considering uh, the U.S. foreign policy establishment, their ideas about China, for example, or even Russia, I wonder if the Chinese have an idea of an international world order and what that looks like. I don't think that they would use the world the word liberal in it. But I wonder, you know, what if we lived in a world considering, you know, post-Trump and somehow, you know, we're living under a Chinese order. Mm. What do you think that would look like? Would that look similar to the international order we have or would that be completely different? So, I mean, the first part of the answer is I... I one of the problems in the debate is there's an assumption that the world is a place where there will be a single leader. And I think that's not the case. I think it's no one's world, as as Charles Kupchin argues. And that's the reality we have to try and adapt to, that we're going to have to negotiate because for a number of reasons, both economic and I think military now, it's pretty hard to conquer the place and pretty hard to project, impose oneself overwhelmingly abroad. Well, China, uh, I do know that they used to have an office of barbarian management, literally, I think in the 19th century as well. That was the name? Yes, that was the translation. 
they there is a persistent idea of China as the world's middle kingdom, which the world comes and pays tribute to and pays obeisance to. Uh, China is as the central state, the oldest and most civilized state, and, and quite a lot of ideas about barbarians in the in the near and far areas. China does now talk about rules based order. They don't talk. They don't say liberal very much for obvious historical reasons. But there is a sense in which this talk of a of an order that is based on rules is now the language of power. It's how it's it's almost the equivalent of French in in sort of. 18th century, 17th century Europe. It's the language of the court. Uh, one of the reasons I will never successfully probably break into the foreign policy establishment while I rail against it, I just don't like the language. But I think that it, it is becoming a way of of showing your importance and statehood as a, as, as a country. Um, I do think China would is, is bidding for domination in, in East Asia. I think it is exerting itself very strongly to constrain the politics of others and to sort of penetrate the sovereign interior of others. I'm thinking of it all the way down to Australia. And that's creating a lot of problems, which is one of the reasons I'm fearful we're a bit late now in having this debate. I mean, Trump has stirred up debate that we should have, that is long, long overdue, or at least the intensity of the debate. But there was no debate. I mean, the, the point is, is that the, I, the, without Trump, we were just going to keep on whistling off the cliff. Yeah. Well. I think it was, I mean, we may have had other things happen under a Hillary Clinton presidency, some other, you know, who knows what kind of crises. But yes, and a lot of the same questions would be on the table. I just wish well, <laughs> we'd had the debate long ago, but there we are. Uh, but I don't think China can have the world either. That's yeah. my point. And I think, you know, I think this is one of those things where, you know, I, IR is set up for a very, you know, interesting hundred years or whatever the number is, because uh, <clears throat> as much as people like, focusing on domestic politics instead, this is the return to multipolarity is going to be a big test for a lot of people's writing and thinking about international relations. It's been a while since we lived under a obviously multipolar world yeah, yeah. and and things have changed. And the question is, you know, how much do nukes matter? Don't know. How much does the European right. Union matter? Don't know. How much do international institutions matter? Don't know. How much about norms and John Mueller's work about, well, war is now unthinkable? Mm, I really hope so, dude, because we're going to test that theory over the next yeah. hundred years a lot. And so I don't know where all the answers are going to be. I just I just know they're going to start to unfurl bit by bit. And and you know, but but I'm not sure it's too late because I'm not sure it was ever early enough. I don't know that there's such a thing as imposing order on a multipolar system. I just don't know that that's super possible. Like an unstable element, yes, you can have a concert for a certain period of time, but but if you're that would uh, be good right now, I think that would be nice. We could we could use some of that a grand bargain with China over you know East Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, fine, I would I would do some of that, but would I be certain that that was the last of this chapter of the story? Nah, not as things continue to level out and well, that, yeah, know. if the species can can eke out another few hundred years, that would be something. I mean, there's no guarantee that we'll be around forever. And we've had quite a good run. Uh, I would like a few hundred more years, uh, but that's going to take some careful management. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, the next generation of Americans, at least, will be living in a world where America is not necessarily um, the most powerful country in the world. And I think just for America itself, this is going to be something very hard to digest. Um, and just also just thinking about, you know, Americans are very critical, especially when it comes to voting. 
um, about foreign policy. And, and I was reading articles on how a lot of American voters don't like when U.S. government sort of imposes itself on other people, etc. But at the same time, I think this is um, something you had mentioned about the liberal international order, about, you know, some of the liberal order that the role of America in the liberal order has been driven by American privilege. And I think what we're seeing is a decrease in American privilege. And we'll have to see how Americans deal with that. Yeah. And I think the world has a complicated relationship with America. I mean, it, it resents the exercise of privilege, but it also demands American help. And, and it fears, a lot of the world fears American abandonment. It doesn't mean they want necessarily to sign up unambiguously to America, but they don't want America to leave either. And part of the discipline of negotiating the new multipolarity would be other countries actually having to accept a little bit less America in their lives with all the downside of that as well. Uh, I mean, the extreme cases of the sort of the militant Islamist who wants to burn America but wants all the products at the same time. It, it wants, it loathes, in a sense, loathing modernity whilst wanting the nice things that modernity delivers. Uh, that's not just focused on America, but you know that's that's the that's what America sort of symbolizes. I mean, I think with luck, America can remain one of the great powers if it, it addresses a number of things. But I think you're right that there is there's likely to be a tide receding to a degree, and it's about managing that change. But even if I'm wrong, and actually American primacy is going to go on and on, then the, the most important question is, well, how do you keep that healthy as much as possible so that the republic remains enough of a constitutional republic and a wealthy place and everything that it's got a tolerable existence? So, you know, you always have to imagine that you're just wrong on your assumptions. But that's, I think that's then the challenge. Well, I think that will do for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Thank Patrick. Thank you very much. Um, and thanks, as usual, to our producer, Jeff Geld, and to all of you out there for listening. Also, I'm sad to announce that this is actually my last uh, episode as I wrap up my fellowship here at Cato. But I do have some very good news. Emma Ashford, who was the original co-host with Trevor Thrall, will be returning in October. So please do stay tuned. The podcast is most certainly continuing on. Um, find us on Twitter um, with Cato FP to continue the conversation.